Welcome to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations with Nina Impala. Do you have questions about death? How about events surrounding death? Or perhaps you have questions that need to be answered after death. On this program, we talk frankly and openly about the subject and invite you to share your comments and experiences as well. Now, here is your host, Nina Impala. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. I have got a lovely lady here today. She's, she's here and she's, she's tuning in from Israel, and it's very early in the morning there, so I'm just going to send her a little blessing right now because she's on here and on the show. I have Leda Meredith with me today, and we're going to be talking about her wonderful father, Kelly Johnson, who decided to do the end-of-life option. But before we get into that, I want to share a little bit about Leda because she has a very interesting life and it's, it's, it needs to be shared. So she has always very felt very connected to nature through wild, edible, and medicinal plants and mushrooms growing all around her. She's felt this since she was a child, even though she grew up in a city. Her mission to share that connection that so, so that others may enjoy the free, delicious, healthy food growing all around them in a way that benefits both them and the ecosystems they harvest from. It's important to note this because, you know, when we go to take care of a loved one in life, our life stops. And that's what she did for her dad. She has got a beautiful website and she does amazing things with plants that are all around us. So check her out at LedaMeredith.com. She got the call that her dad, Kelly Johnson, was dying on hospice and Kelly chose to end his life through a hospice that supported his decision. Leda made the choice to pause her own life to go take care of him for the next three weeks. Leda expresses it takes a village to help someone die. Through her and all Kelly's beautiful friends, he was able to die in a way that was incredibly supported, celebrated, peaceful, and legal. So welcome to the show, Leda. I'm so happy to have you with me again. Thank you, Nina. So, hey, I really wanted to start with, you know, I posted the video on Facebook from that was so beautiful that your dad did. So, tell us about your dad's life. He had a very exciting art-filled, dance-filled, singing-filled life. Yeah, he started out um, as a child performer at the tail end of the vaudeville circuit. And he and his sister were a vaudeville act and they were doing tap dancing and acrobatics and contortionism and all kinds of stuff, um, touring around the Chicago circuit. And then uh, in the Midwest, and he came to San Francisco and um, he and my mom had a company, San Francisco Dance Theater, um, that had a big impact on the dance scene in San Francisco. And, and beyond that, he helped to fund and start uh, a bunch of different organizations that are still in place, the Area Dance Coalition, et cetera. Um, and then he went on to be the executive director of the Berkeley Symphony. And he had been a musician, you know, he played piano from when he was a kid, but he was working on the business end of it. And then um, he went on eventually to do his own little uh, circuit where he left Berkeley Symphony and started playing piano concerts, live classical piano music concerts for retirement homes. And for a few years, um, he how was doing... Was we, how old was he when he did the retirement homes? Was that like when his... He... Uh, I. I think he started that in his late 50s, early 60s. Wow, that's good. And he kept doing it up until a few years before he died. At that point, um, physically, he still played the piano a bit, but physically he was in really bad shape and it wasn't practical for him to be driving around uh, playing piano. So, um, but yeah, um, into his 60s. Every aspect of his life, that's what I get, is just been full of so much life. 
just so much life. He just seemed like a, you know, the pictures that I saw in the video and just from knowing you and what you've told me about him. So the important thing I think to recognize when he made this decision was that he didn't want to go through this long, arduous process, right? And it's an option. And I think that's the main, the main part of this show that I really want to put out there to people is that it's an option. It's something there if you want it. How did you feel about it, Leda, when he came to you with this? He, um, how did I feel? I mean, of course, it's a mix of feelings because I knew I was about to lose a loved one in terms of he wouldn't physically be there anymore. Um, And on the other hand, I was so relieved because I knew how much he was suffering and he was so clear in his choice. And that made it easy for me or easier for me Mm -hmm. um, because he was so clear about it. He very much like what you just said, um, he did not want to diminish. (laughs) He did not want to go down this physical decline and possibly eventually mental decline. Um, He was still 100% mentally sharp at the end. And in fact, would not have been allowed to utilize that end of life option if he hadn't been, because you have to be able to go through some interviews and there's a whole process. And at least as it was when he did it, you know, somebody with dementia, say, would not be able to, to choose this option. Um, so he was mentally all there and he was physically suffering so much. Right. And he wanted to die at home. He did not want to be moved out of the place where he had lived for about five decades. Wow. To some strange place with people he didn't know out of his neighborhood, uh, away from the life that he had built for himself. Right. And so this was also, um, besides the end of physical suffering for him, it was a way to stay in, in his life, in his community, in his home, with his friends nearby, and not suddenly be in a strange place. place you know, it's torn that, out like or back and forth trips to the hospital maybe before hospice comes on. Yeah. You know, the thing that really touches me about it is it's just that that unknown factor, you know, and you talk to people about it. I mean, you think about your own life when you get to the end of your own life. I know I do, you know, and just think, what's that gonna be like for me? How 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 is that gonna feel? And what if, you know, I have two sons and I think to myself, there's some stuff that I just wouldn't be comfortable with if they were taking care of me, nor would I want them to see that and have that impression left in their mind. Because being in hospice as long as I have and you even losing your father, there are certain images that just don't go away at the end of life. They stay with us for a while. They just do. And I think that having the knowledge to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to take the medicine when it's time for me. And this is how I want to leave this world. The other part that I think about it, um, Leda, is the finances. You know, when you linger a really long time, and, and let's face it, I mean, healthcare is crazy. In, in where I live in California, it's just, it will drain you. It will ruin you. You can go bankrupt. You're constantly having to get on the phone, fix things, make sure that they haven't taken more or charged you more. And when you're sick and you don't have any strength, that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, think about when you make a phone call now. How long are you waiting to talk to a nurse or to talk to the billing department and get stuff sorted out? And then it's still wrong. And sometimes I think it could just eat people's retirement. So this to me was something that was kind of important too, is the financial aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, We're seeing a a bit of the, a different side of that right now um, with my mother-in-law and um, 
she at she is in a um, a home at this point and not mentally capable of taking care of all the details herself. So my sister-in-law is doing a lot of that, all of that, <laughs> and um, and how hard that is. Um, with my dad, um, he tried to have everything in order as much as possible, and that made my job so much easier. Right. I will say that the hospice program that he was part of, mm-hmm. they were amazing um, oh, in those terms, in terms of the, the logistics and the finances and all of that, which is is part of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's something you have to deal with. It. If, if When someone is passing away, that's, uh, for better or worse, that's on the table. And... Um, this was a hospice they, in San Francisco. Sorry to interrupt you. Was what hospice. was the name of it? So we could just. It was Kaiser. Okay. Um, oh, that was great. That was his health insurance. So that oh. was where they came through. Um, and I, I don't actually know what the other options are since I don't live in California anymore. But um, one of the things that they did that was amazing. Um, even stuff that they couldn't themselves take care of that was outside of their kind of jurisdiction of what they handle, they could connect me to another organization or another individual or somebody who could help me. That's great. So um, there were a lot of things where I was like, and what do I do about this? And what do I do about this? And I could just ask the hospice people and then say, okay, we don't do that, but here's a phone number. Right. You know, go. Go ahead, Leda. Um, so I, that includes practicalities um, <laughs> that nobody wants to think about, but it's like, okay, and he took the medicine and now he's dead. And what do I do with the body? I mean, that's very blunt, but. It, yep. You know, that's- that's true. It's part of hospice's job to help you with every aspect of that, you know? And if you like, how many deaths have you gone through in your life where you have physically taken care of somebody up to this point in your life? Once, this is just your dad, right? That's an, a really important fact. I want my audience to know I've helped hundreds of people die. Most people only have one or two. So exactly what you're saying right now, Leda, is so important because you don't know. Where does a body go after it dies in my house? Who takes care of that? Who picks up the body? Then what happens? You know, that's a social worker's job, bereavement's job, and that type of things. So that's a very good point. I just had to bring that up. Yeah, no, no, totally essential. And, and because the, this hospice team was so great, and also because my dad had made such an effort uh, to have everything lined up. Right. Um, so that there was a plan so that um, when the day came, there was somebody I could call and say, okay, um, here we go. Uh, And, and that just, I I can't imagine if that hadn't been the case. I would have, I would have had no idea (laughs) what to do. I guess I would have been calling 911 or something. I don't know. Um, But, but, you know, I would have had no idea. So hospice was incredible with that. They also made suggestions to me, that I might not have thought of on my own. Um, for example, the last week, uh, my dad had already, you know, we knew he had, was planning to take the end of life medicine and all of that. Um, but um, his body was failing pretty fast. And so I basically wasn't getting any sleep because I was, you know, semi-awake all night with one ear in case he called out or something. Um, he would need help getting to the bathroom. I mean, all, all the practical stuff. Yeah. Um, and and I basically just wasn't getting any sleep to take care of him. Uh, and hospice suggested, listen, if, if you have the finances, this is a company we use a lot that will have somebody come and send a nurse to spend the night Right. who's there to take care of any of that. And of course, to wake you up if, if needed, but 
you know, um, basically to be there and they're trained and they know how to take care of the person and they know where their medication is and all that stuff. And uh, so for the last week I did that um, and that was at hospice's suggestion. And um, it meant that I was able to get some sleep, which meant that I was able to be there for him during the day, you know, a hundred percent and not be kind of strung out and exhausted. Um, And obviously not everybody would be able to do that, but it was such a a lovely suggestion. And the nurse who, the night nurse who ended up uh, doing that for, it wasn't even a week. I think it was like the last five days um, actually came to the funeral afterwards and said he had been incredibly moved by my dad's story and life and passing and, and knowing us and kind of became part of the family at the end. It was the way, the way he went about it. It was your dad's just his demeanor and his acceptance and his openness and transparency at the end of his life. And, uh, We have to go to break, and I want to start there when we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nina offers an alternative to traditional counseling. Sessions are not just 50 minutes, but a full hour. When you go in for a regular counseling session, many times you don't remember everything. Nina's difference is a summary email after each session and or a follow-up phone call if needed up to two weeks after. Nina also provides hospital visit consultations as necessary. Sessions with Nina and Paula are $250. And if you book a three-session package, you will get a $100 discount. Let's get you feeling peaceful and happy again. Losing someone we love is one of the most challenging, fearful, and heart-rending experiences we are ever likely to face. In her book, Dearly Departed, Nina Impala shares stories of her experiences as a hospice volunteer for more than 12 years and how those experiences prepared her for the final days of her own parents. Nina emphasizes the importance of being a good listener and living a good life. Dearly Departed by Nina Impala is available in paperback or Kindle edition through Amazon.com or your favorite book retailer. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. If you have a question for Nina Impala or her guest today, call into our program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. So we're back with... Leda, Leda Meredith. Sorry, Leda, I'm getting used to saying your name the way you want me to. It's with Leda Meredith. So um, I'm so happy to have her here today. Just before the break, we were really talking about the beautiful personality of her father. You know, with making this decision, Leda, it, it brought him so in touch with the preciousness of life. So I think he could focus more on saying goodbye and really... Oh, gosh, the the people that are shown in the video, people that he loved so dearly, the Pete's Coffee people that he knew, that he brought everybody in so close. And as you were saying, he was making eye contact with people and really touching the souls of, of people because he had this awareness, I'm going to be gone in three days. And I think that's the difference that knowing that my life will end on Monday, that is my last day. And there was a beauty in that that is is a little bit different because you know it's coming. 
I think uh, for him, definitely. And for all of us who were close to him also, um, so many people said this is unlike anything I've ever experienced because they got to say goodbye and they knew this is it. Um, nobody postpones that lunch date if they know it's the last lunch date, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, at a certain point um, you get a feeling of this in the, the video, but I don't think we ever actually say it. At a certain point, we just stopped locking the door and it was understood that anybody could come into the apartment say anytime, um, say goodbye. And it was just nonstop people wow. coming and going. Um, a couple of friends flew in from Seattle, um, you know, uh, yeah, from, from all over. And um, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary gift um, to get to say goodbye, to not just get the news unexpectedly that like, oh, this person's gone. But no, you actually got to say whatever you wanted to say. You got to give the person a hug. Um, it, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and he um, understood that. And so he... Uh, I won't say he organized it because it sort of organized itself, but people just started showing up. Um, but uh, he was, he was aware that that was what was going on was that people wanted to see him. Cause they and, knew that he was going to die on this day. Yes. Right? That he was going to die on that day. And of course, because the end of life option is only for people who are still of sound mind, Cognizant, yes. An, an important point. Um, there was always the option for him to change his mind. Right up to the last second, he could have changed his mind. That's beautiful. Uh, okay. And one thing that you don't hear on the video that those of us who were in the room with him all remember is that immediately after he actually did slurp down the medicine, he said very quietly under his breath, I did it. Um, wow. And that to me was a reminder that he might not have done it, <laughs> that, that he had the choice up until that last second and that it was his choice. Um, and, and what I heard was he was kind of proud of himself. For <laughs> it sounds that way to me too. So that was the sense that you had, the intuitive yeah. feeling that you had about that. Who did the video and how did that come about? Why did he decide to do a whole yeah, video? Yeah, so amazing. Um, and it's I'm so beautiful. I, I have to say it's very well done. And, yeah. Um, so um, Arash, the filmmaker, and Thomas Reynolds, uh, who is no longer in San Francisco, but was the editor for a paper called The New Fillmore in San Francisco. Uh, and Thomas had come to get some, some copper candle holders that my dad had from a very particular artist who did all this work in copper who lived in that neighborhood. And when he came to get the candle holders, um, my dad started talking about hey, I'm going to die on Monday because I'm doing this. And Thomas also taught um, filmmaking uh, and, and so on and went, wait a minute, this is a bigger story than these candle holders. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we need to document this if you're willing. Wow. Um, and, and had a young filmmaker that he, Arash that he thought would be perfect for it um, and my dad was not only willing, he was excited about it because he so wanted to share the story of what a blessing this end of life option was for him and to let people know that um, dying in some cases, in his case, could be a celebration of life, that it was a celebration of bringing together the people who loved him, that he loved um, which was kind of the 
to me the whole point of the video. Yes. Um, they were very unobtrusive. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, at no point did it feel like, why is this camera in my dad's face while he's dying or anything like that? Um, it was very unobtrusive, but it was because my dad wanted the story told. Um, like he would be, is, I'm sure, uh, wherever mm. his is right now thrilled that we're doing this um, because he wanted the story told and he wanted to know people to know that you don't necessarily have to be in more and more and more physical agony and decline and torn out of your community and your circumstances and that it doesn't have to be like that, yes. that it can be um, a kind of a celebration, which I, is... I- agree a hundred percent I agree a hundred percent I I you know I do a lot of reading later about end of life and I I read a lot of stories I just finished another book called knocking on heaven's door by a wonderful lady named Katie Butler and um, she mentions in that you know technology can keep people alive for a long time and many times people don't get on hospice or not on hospice a very short time which is interesting to me because I I have had very few patients that have really been on hospice for a longer time and their quality of life could, could be better the sooner they get on it. But when people are resisting death, a lot of things are done to them that prolong their lives in ways where they won't die a natural death. They're dying with tubes in them and in hospitals and places like that. And I don't want that. You know what your dad decided to do and die at home. That was a really beautiful thing. What did he have to go through in order to do the end of life options? If you could just walk us through that a little bit. I know it was a couple of years ago. Things may have changed as we know. And then you had something. I remember last time I talked to you that just at the time he died, it was either suspended or revoked in the, uh, Northern California where you were. So. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So starting with the last thing first, I guess, um, I, 10 days or so after my dad died, uh, the end of life option was suspended for about a month mm-hmm. and then it was brought back. And so as far as I know, it is now legal, but again, that that's a couple years ago that this all happened. But I can't imagine for the people who had gone through the qualifying process that my dad had to go through and then were told, oops, sorry. Um, oh, I can't that's either. not an option anymore. I, I can't even imagine how horrendous that, that must have been. Um, the process, uh, at that time anyway, first of all, yeah, you do have to qualify for hospice, meaning that you are – suffering from some physical ailment that is considered terminal. Okay. And you need to have two doctors sign off on that and say, we do not have a treatment for this. There is no medication or surgery or anything that is going to cure this. Uh, My dad's personal uh, primary physician refused to do it. He wouldn't sign off on it, and doctors have that option. They don't have to. So my dad actually had to find two doctors who would examine him and and say that he was incurable. Um, Then the process is about three weeks, during which you have two two more interviews with those two doctors where they're basically saying, are you still sure? Um, and you need to be of sound mind. Your body may be falling apart, but you do need to be of sound mind and you need to be able to speak for yourself. Um, and you have two more interviews over these few weeks uh, with the doctors to say, yes, I still want to do this. Yes, I still want to do this. Uh, at the end of that, after the two interviews, if there is a pharmacy where you live that has opted to offer the end-of-life medication. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that part. They will okay. send it to you. And just as an example, because pharmacies have the option not 
to do that. Wow. Uh, in San Francisco at that time, there was only one pharmacy in the city that was offering to do that. So although it's legal uh, in California and San Francisco, uh, not so simple to get. But again, hospice helped arrange this and found the pharmacy that would do it. Anything for you. That's... Um, they send the medication over actually only a matter of days before whatever date the person has chosen. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a nurse or someone from hospice or a doctor present who is outside the family to confirm that the person took the medication themselves. It was not handed, you know, not (laughs) force fed to them by, by anyone. Um, you can, and what you you see in the video with my dad, um, you can have somebody else hand them the glass and you can have them put a straw in, but the per- if the person can't lift the glass physically, but the person has to drink it themselves and be physically capable of doing that. So you can't actually pour the drink into their mouth. That, no, that's they it. Need to, your dad had yeah. a straw in a little glass right. and he just yeah. did it. And he did look strong enough to do it. And there was a nurse um, from hospice. You don't see on on the video, but sitting just a few feet away, uh, watching the whole thing and confirming that he did it himself. Um, So all those steps. So the first interviews, um, and, and obviously that means that it's not an option for everybody because he did have to be, coherent and, and able to do the interviews and able to. Uh, um, do the doctors have to be from like the same, is like two doctors from the same hospital or same facility or same practice? As far as I know, not. Um, All right. So in talking about that, you know, having to find people that are open to it. How did you do with friends and family when your dad decided to make this decision? Did you have people that were like, lady, you need to talk him out of this. You you know, you can't let him do this. This isn't right. We don't agree with this. Mm -hmm. Did you hit any of that? Yeah. um, Two from two friends, actually. Um, One because once somebody goes into hospice care, even if they're not doing end of life, um, basically the cap comes off how much medication they can take. Yes. So my dad was on steroids and painkillers with a limit. And once, once he became terminal uh, and then once he chose the end of life option, that limit came off. And so the amount of steroids he was on went through the roof uh, would have been completely unsustainable if he was trying to stay alive. Like his liver would have just choked. Okay. Um, makes sense. Because he wasn't, it was like, okay, have at, you know, it makes you feel better. Go for it. Um, because of that, he actually had this little bounce back where he actually put on a little weight and got a little more color in his face. And people at the end were like, he's looking healthier than we've seen him for years. Are you sure he's dying? Um, So there was some weird pushback from that because he actually was looking better and people didn't know the specifics and realize this is a little bit artificial and wouldn't be sustainable if he was going to stay alive. Um, And so there was that. And then there were some people who, for religious reasons or whatever, um, just looked at it and went, this is suicide and it's wrong. Um, And what I encountered and what I would warn anybody who's in a caretaker position about is that um, they're probably not going to take it out whatever doubts they have on the person who has decided to die they're going to look for the next in line which in this case was me right so they weren't going to say to my dad how can you do this you know because they didn't want to stress him out because uh, he was so obviously going through so much anyway so they would be very kind and gentle with him. And then as they left the room and I was showing them out, would launch into me. Um, 
with how can you do this and you have to stop him and so on. Yes. And, um, and sometimes I dealt with that multiple times a day. Um, multiple times a day. Yeah. And uh, one, again, hospice was helpful because um, they actually told me in the guidebook that they gave me to expect that. So when it happened, I was like, oh, right. <laughs> they said this would happen. Okay. Uh, and to understand that it's all coming from love and from people caring about the person and, you know, uh, that it wasn't my job to try to change their minds. That's exactly right. It's all. And to just let them say what they had to say. And you say, thank you for sharing your feelings and you move on. Right, exactly. It's just what it is. It, it is what it is. It's not about changing their beliefs or their politics or, you know, anything else. Um, and But but it does, you know, um, it's a lot to handle because uh, for anybody in that position, I'm giving you a big hug right now because um, you are the buffer Um that is allowing that person to die with dignity because you're absorbing a lot of the not so dignified parts. Yeah, I agree. You know, when you talk about this, I want to say, you know, with what you just said, when you're the one in line and you, you tell us, you say to somebody, you know, um, thank you for sharing your opinion with me. And, then you just kind of have to walk away because even with the end of life option, what I've noticed in hospice, many times when I've been at the bed at family members, you know, there's always that person comes in that hasn't done any of the caregiving, that hasn't been there day and night, that all of a sudden comes in and starts making decisions and why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that when you're the person's with them all the time? And, and it's always that, thank you for sharing that with me. And that's it. Because, yeah. um, oh, so hold on. I need to turn my mic up here a little bit. Okay. There we go. There we go. So, yep, yeah, it's better. Okay. Sorry about that. So I think that that's really important because I've witnessed it so many times and it puts so much stress on the person caring that that is a conversation that everybody needs to learn at the end of life, whether there's an end of life option or not. My favorite word, or I should say phrase, is it's all about the person in the bed. It's about them. It's yeah. not about you. But when what we're talking about today and what it's inspiring end of life conversations is about is the fact and the importance of allowing people to die and just being in acceptance of it. I think that's really important. And and with what you're discussing today, Leda, and the beautiful death that your father had with the end-of-life option was a really beautiful, peaceful, legal passing. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, it was um, all of that. And um, I can only hope for something as dignified and uh, surrounded by love for myself and, and people I think in my the same. Yes, I think the same thing because I think that, you know, death and dying is a subject that I talk very openly about because I'm so passionate about people having a good death no matter how they have it and bringing knowledge and wisdom to how to die and how to have a good death. And Tell us, oh, I have to I have to bring this up because it was so beautiful on the video. If you can paint the picture, the day before he took the medicine, he they all met at Pete's Coffee. He was surrounded by a lot of people and dogs and singers <laughs> and feathers. And it was just extravagant. And he was so happy. Yeah, so it was actually the morning of um, Oh, okay. So the morning of okay. Take us through uh, that. And everybody in the neighborhood that he had been meeting at Pete's Coffee Shop with for years 
yeah. knew that this is this is the last day. This is the last day with him. So you know, no, nobody doesn't show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Nobody canceled and said I can't make it. Let's do it next weekend. Yeah, uh-huh. like everybody shows. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm Kim Nally, amazing professional jazz musician was there singing a cappella for him. And, oh, yeah, and, uh, she was beautiful. And, um, and uh, he, he knew he, he, he had not been out of the house for two weeks at that point. He was in a wheelchair, and he had not been able to get out of his home for two weeks. And he was very clear. He said, I want, on the last day, I, I want to go out one more time. Mm-hmm. And that meant rallying a team my my husband had uh come to san francisco to help out at that point and we called a bunch of his friends and literally physically getting him out the door was <laughs> a big deal right? people holding him and carrying right. him and he needed an oxygen tank and yeah uh, you know all the logistics of just actually getting him out the door um and what he wasn't expecting was that there were about 40 people waiting for him. Uh, he just knew that he was going out the door one more time and going to Pete's and probably would see a couple of friends and, you know, so that, that was, was a surprise. I didn't surprise. realize that part. Okay. That was a surprise. Um, and, um, the door opened and he saw his whole community of friends there and, and, um, including people that, probably hadn't been a daily part of his life for a while, but from the past. Uh, and we put him in a wheelchair and we took him down to the coffee shop and they had actually put a plaque up on the wall mm-hmm. and on his usual spot that he sat at for him, um, honoring him. And um, it was also, I actually had another moment there, you know, again and again, if you're in the caregiver position, you get reminded, like you said, it's, it's not about you. It's about them. Um, because he's in the coffee shop and these people are around him. And for me, I kept thinking, this is his literally last chance to feel wind or be in oh. sunshine. And he's inside. Like, we have to get him outside. And it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful, sunny, warm day. And I thought if it was me, I would want to be outside in nature in nature yeah and he really didn't care about that not funny (laughs) he was happy being with all his friends and he we we did get him outside eventually but but it was interesting that at a certain point you know I felt this urgency to get him outside to do that and then I realized that's not about him that's about me that's what I would want um, and that's a really good point, Leda. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really important that you brought that up. Your dad was a showman, you know, but when we get with people and I've done, I did some of the same stuff with my mom, you know, there's just things that you, you think that you want them to have, or you want them to do. And it's not important to them the way it would be important to us. Right. I'm all about the wind too. I'm a little nature girl like you. So that would have been something that would have gone through my mind. Yeah. So that was like one more, wait a minute, shift the priorities. Um, this, this is not my death. This is his death. Um, and how does he want it to go? Yeah. And, you know, was- take a step back. Um, but that, um, like you said, nobody cancels. Nobody says, let's do it next week. Um, the urgency of, and the finality meant everybody who could came out and including people that he hadn't seen for years. And, and, uh, and I think was a gift to all of us, not just to him that he got to end his life with dignity, but to make those priorities and, and go, wait a minute, um, I care about this person. He was important in my life. And nothing else I had planned to do today is more important than this. That's beautiful. Really is. You know, every time I've watched that video, and I've watched it a couple of times, 
I always tear up. And there's one part in it where he says, come here, so-and-so, let me say goodbye to Maddie. I think it was a dog. And I just, that just touched my heart because I thought, you know, he, you really could, and I'm very intuitive and I'm a feeler, a very visual person. And in that moment, I, it was just like, I could just feel him reaching out to have the physical, because I'm rubbing my hands here, the physical feeling of saying goodbye to an animal, to a dog, a loving little pup. Like, I love you, but I have to go. So I'm going to say goodbye to you. I just thought that was really touching to me. I mean, all the people and all that, but to call over the dog and yeah. scratch its little ears and I'm going to miss you. Yeah. I would just always make me tear up. Animals, there's one other little animal story that you can't see in the video that happened. Um, You mentioned the feathers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. We had this this weird family tradition that we used to, like, people put tinsel on their Christmas trees. Well, we had this bag of feathers left over from some theatrical production when my parents had a dance company. Okay. Of pink and orange feathers that we used to just throw on the Christmas tree at the end, like, Oh, that's cool. Okay. Pink and orange has nothing to do with Christmas and who knows what, but we would just throw these feathers on the tree. So um, somewhere in actually starting to pack up things in the house a little bit, Mm -hmm. I came across the remains of the bag of feathers. And so on that last morning when we got my dad down to the street and into his wheelchair and are taking him to the coffee shop, um, I was throwing the feathers in front of him, kind of confetti New Orleans style. Um, and he got it immediately. He's like, oh, my God, the pink and orange feathers. We used to put these on the tree, uh, which was great. And then one of the people who was there said that she had seen, it was spring, it was May 7th, and she had seen a bird with two of the feathers in its beak flying off to make a nest. And I love because with spring and birds are making nests. And I like to think that the nests on Fillmore Street were a lot more colorful than usual that spring mm. because the, the feathers disappeared from the street and the birds apparently liked them and were picking them up. Um, and I did see one little nest with some pink and orange. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful story, Leda. I love that kind of stuff. I really do. Your dad, I mean, I'm sure that he is so close to you all the time. I invited him in. I said, Kelly, come on and hang out with us while we're doing this interview today. It really felt that. So I feel like that story perhaps came from him. Absolutely. Because we haven't talked about it before, you know. So he, he 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 was iconic in that neighborhood. You said he lived in that house for 50 decades and where he was at. So the way that. Kelly decided to end his life. To me, it it fit him perfectly. It really did. It fit him perfectly, you know, and the way he went about it and the way he planned it and the way he had his friends there. Now, at the very end, when you guys were all in in the living room, it looked like, it was neat because that was just close people. I'm assuming it was probably just you and family members and things like that. And you were all sitting around him and there were, and I'm just going to get graphic about this, 99 little pills that you open that makes about a half a cup of whatever the, the medicine is. And then Kelly decided to drink it with orange juice. But after I noticed everybody had a little bit of Campari or some kind of liqueur to chase it and you guys like all did a chaser with him or something. Yeah, that's actually not um, just a like symbolic toast. It's actually part of the medicine. Um, you're actually suggested to not have the person knock back some alcohol um, after they do it. Uh, Interesting, like a couple of ounces, or I just I mean, we just we were doing a little shot of tequila actually. But, Good, that's um, nice. But. Um, all of this, all of that stuff is actually very planned and measured out, and you are rehearsed through it by the hospice people beforehand. Mm. Um, the 
emptying the capsules like they could just send over a powder. I mean, it's second all, it's a barbiturate. Uh, so basically the person is doing what I would call a rock and roll overdose because you're going to take a bunch of downers and then you're going to chase it with some alcohol. and That's it. Wow. Um, the logistics of opening all those capsules is one last chance to reconsider. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's really. To open all those capsules. Uh, Contemplation. Is one last chance to go, are you really sure about this? Um, and then once you add the liquid, like you said, my dad did orange juice, but they actually give you a little measuring thing of exactly how much liquid you can use. Mm -hmm. be measured. Um, you have, the person has one minute after you add the liquid to get it down. After that one minute, it starts apparently thickening into a kind of gel that's very hard to swallow. Okay. So they also tell you this. So basically, once you add the liquid, you have one minute to drink it. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then the alcohol chaser kind of seals the deal because it's alcohol plus the barbiturate. Um, the person takes an anti-nausea medication one hour before all of that. Mm-hmm which is also part of the whole thing they talk you through. Um, so, yeah, so my dad originally wanted champagne uh, for his final toast after the medicine. And he was told, no, you can't do that because apparently anything fizzy or bubbly could make you throw up the medicine. So he wasn't actually allowed to do champagne. So tequila was his ch second choice. That's so great. Um, but yeah, but when, when you see us doing that toast at, at the end, that's, um, not entirely symbolic. It's actually part of the, part of the whole program of how to take for him to die yeah. was really, it was just profound. The whole thing was profound. I've learned so much from that video. We're getting close to our close here later and I can let you go get some sleep. I'm so <laughs> So grateful that you decided to come on the show again and share your dad's story, his end of life, his friends, his laughter, and just all of who Kelly Johnson is. It was just really beautiful. And he's always going to have a place in my heart for sharing on my show and, um, and just you. You know, so check out Leda's website too. I, it really is fascinating what this woman does. So you really need to do it. It's Leda, L-E-D-A, Meredith, M-E-R-D-I-T-H.com. Correct? M-E-R-D-I-T-H.com. Yeah. So we were happy to have you and thank you for tuning in all the way from Israel. And I sure hope you get home soon. I really do. <laughs> I really hope so too. And I know my dad would be, is overjoyed about this so he is he is you're welcome dear take good care bye-bye bye so thanks everybody for listening today this was such an interesting show and uh Leda is a beautiful woman and she does beautiful stuff and her dad is an amazing man. So it was a really great show. If you have any questions or anything else, you can always reach me at tutoringforthespirit at gmail.com. Thanks. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe and take good care. Bye-bye. We hope you have found hope in this week's edition of Inspiring End-of-Life Conversations. Please join your host, Nina Impala, for another program next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again soon.